So very good morning to all of you. As I look around the group, this is part two of uh, 19 seats to anywhere, which was uh, basically we're looking at some of the lessons that Heather and I gained from uh, the, the semester study program that we ran this last spring in Cairo. Part one was two weeks ago, but fortunately, I don't think anybody who was at part one has come back for part two. <laughs> oh, Dave, I'm sorry. Uh, I got a great lesson, too, and it wasn't part of your agenda, I don't think, is it? Because of course. stuck in an airport for days, make sure it's Hamburg or Dubai, right? <laughs> Excellent. You were listening. So, very, very briefly, uh, the semester study program, and I should say, we actually have one of the alumna here. So Kenna is here. We could just do the same thing over again. <laughs> I know, the exact same thing from last time. No, no. Dave was here. We, so very simply, um, Heather and I have been running a program for Westmont. Uh, it's a semester study program. We run it every other year. So we've now, the, this was the fifth iteration this last spring. And we take students somewhere between 16 and 20 students each time. We have 10 weeks in Cairo. And then 10 days in Istanbul. And then 23 days in uh, Israel-Palestine. So that's the 16 weeks. We are very committed to trying to facilitate students meeting with principally Egyptians, of course, in Cairo because we very strongly believe that it's, it's less the, the programmatic dimensions, but more the interpersonal dimensions that really stay with people and really cause, cause lasting change. I should also say we have an alumna, uh, Meg here, from our 2014 iteration of the program. Uh, so thanks very much for coming along. Heather and I, Last time we spoke about what we think some of the lessons the students might have learned, or at least we hope they learned. And today we thought we might speak about some of the lessons that Heather and I learned from running these programs, because they are hugely formational for us as well as for the students. We greatly, we love this work. We love this work. The opportunity to take a group of 19, 20-year-olds outside of their normal context and simply introduce them to a part of the world, a region that we both love, is, is absolutely glorious. And to see students just open and grow, flowers almost, in front of us, is a, is a fantastic experience and a great privilege. So we, we love that. I think of the, is that a little better? Maybe if I just direct the microphone there. It'll be fine, Nikki, thanks. I would say that the, the first thing that Heather and I have learned from this experience over the last nine years is 
how helpful it is to take students out of their normal context as a locus for learning. You know, there are many precedents in the scripture for how people were on journeys when their lives were transformed. The journey itself seems to have been significant. We, we think of Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldees to go into the promised land. We think of Jacob meeting Esau and the very powerful encounter they had. We think of Moses bringing the people through the desert and out into the promised land. Even the good Samaritan perhaps learned how to be good on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I think this context in which students are able to be away from that which is familiar is very palpably helpful for the journey, the real journey that we make, which is the inward journey. And I think that interrupting business as usual is so helpful for all of us, which I think is, has made me reflect on the power of the spiritual disciplines, you know, those great practices of the Christian tradition. Because at their root, I believe that the spiritual disciplines are each an interruption of business as usual. So Sabbath, practicing the discipline of Sabbath, is it interrupts our constant desire to work. Lent and fasting interrupt that, you know, almost um, unchecked, unchallenged, pattern of eating. We have, and so I, I think for me this was, was captured by um, a very strong visual image. Back in 2016, we were in Turkey and we organized a, a quiet day. We, every semester in the middle we have a quiet day where for 24 hours students don't talk. And I remember uh, one of, you know, some of our students are extremely extroverted and they are without exception very, very nervous before this quiet day. Because what am I going to do? I mean, a whole, no talking at all? No, no talking at all. And I remember seeing the jubilant face of this young woman who had, at the end of the quiet day, as we're coming together for, for dinner, uh, we've been in a very beautiful spot um, in, in southern Turkey. And she had experienced the value of not having to talk, not having to project herself, not having to uh, be conscious of people around her for, for, for one day, 24 hours. And that the fear and anxiety that she had had been transformed into a discovery that sometimes interrupting business as usual is exactly what we need. So that was the first lesson.
as I'm thinking about this, I'm realizing, I don't know, we live through our students, I think. Um, the lessons I've learned are probably the lessons of my students. I don't know, I, it's hard for me to speak about the one, and, and I'll probably be mostly speaking about students. Um, but I think echoing that is the idea of interrupting is important and being outside of what's familiar. But one of the things I think that I, what the program has done is helped me to appreciate more what Egypt has done for me, I think, and what I just learned from living in another culture for over a decade. And I think what I learned and then what I see students learning is um, actually just coming to appreciate my Americanness better. And in particular, um, our commitment to solving problems and that that's really where we focus our energy. There's a problem and then we have a very much of a can-do attitude. Um, and being married to Jim, and they surrendered their can-do British attitude when they lost their empire. But um, <laughs> so you, ha you guys did, really. But it's, it's, it's been really we're, we're definitely a let's think of 23 reasons why we can't do it society. <laughs> yes. Um, you should have read the British press before they hosted the Olympics. It was hysterical. Like, it's going to be awful. Um, so I think it's been helpful to have Jim reflect back for me just how much that's a can-do attitude. But I think it can also be everything's a problem to solve. And so what I learned being in Egypt and what I see students learning is ways in which that is a gift and a blessing, but also ways in which that's not necessarily always the answer. Um, and that a lot of the problems in the world do not have clear solutions or quick solutions. And as one of uh, our good friend, who's a bishop in the Coptic church, is always talking about, you know, God made us human beings, not human doings. And it's really hard. Um, and, and I see how that shaped me in Egypt, but to bring students and they do community engagement projects and this sense of what am I doing? What am I achieving? What at the end of the semester can I go back and say, we did? And um, usually not much. Uh, it's a lot of being with, sitting with people, again, relationship, uh, seeing organizations trying to do a lot with a little, but seeing how difficult and intractable a lot of the big challenges of poverty or immigration, refugees, um, war, that these kinds of things are not problems that we're just going to like roll up our sleeves and solve. And so that to me, I think, is then what do we do with that? What does it mean to be created as human beings? And I think, again, as Americans, that can-do attitude can come at, like, everything that focuses on projects more than relationships. And I think being in a country where it's all about relationship, like the traffic cop recognizes the driver of the car and like stops the traffic to like chat in the middle of the intersection with the driver um i've seen that happen you know like it's just about the relationship um and this idea of holding deliverables in check or in counterbalance with relationships i think is something that being in the middle east um and engaging in challenges and seeing people who are doing amazing things by being amazing people 
by just showing up every day faithfully at orphanages or working with refugees and settlement that again it's they're not it's not about what they're going to be able to necessarily do but it's this extending dignity by sitting with and being with and paying attention to i think is something that's a really powerful part of being in the region and engaging with some of the challenges um, that are there and i think it's something that i hoped um, i'm continuing to learn from my involvement in the middle east but is also I think informed how we set up the program of wanting students to learn that as well or be exposed to that as a growth area uh, to, to balance their American can-do-ness. But we could maybe turn this on Kenna and Meg in the Q&A whether that was something that they took away. But that's my thing. So I think the third thing that we have learned very vividly is the relative ease with which you can deconstruct the world for a 19-year-old, but the much greater and more significant work of helping that person to reconstruct and rebuild the world. And this was brought home to me very vividly this summer by uh, one of our, the alumna, alumni of our program, an, an alumnus, uh, a very brilliant young man and someone that Heather and I have gotten to know well over the years. And he uh, told us this summer that he no longer uh, would describe himself as Christian. And there's, there are many reasons for that. But it was a great sadness for, for us to hear that. And we continue to be in relationship with him. We love him very much. And who knows the future? Um, but I think it was just another visceral reminder of how important it is that we, we can give students some kind of a toolkit that will help them in this lifelong work of building the house of their identity and, as Christians, of their spiritual identity. And as I was reflecting on that, I, I I came up with a kind of five simple tools for the toolbox. And those can be formed into the acronym of SCOPE. So the first one is the story. The Christian story is important. And if we are careless about that story, and about the truth claims that underpin our faith, we will suffer. And students who do not have a solid understanding of and are not animated by and excited about the story, the Christian story, will be in trouble. So there is a very appropriate dimension of understanding the story as a supple, rich text, not just to be simplistically imposed, but entered into imaginatively. So the story. Second is confession. I believe that the Christian church should always start with confession. Confession. 
our weekly liturgies start with confession for a reason. This idea of we acknowledge our own complicity with that which is uh, wrong. And I think it's just so powerful if we can get beyond wasting our energy in self-justification and in denial of our own involvement and complicity by actually taking up this magnificent resource of our tradition, this idea of confession, of repentance, and of lament. So that's the C, confession. O is for others, a sense of community. As I get older, I increasingly become convinced that all the most important lessons that I've learned in my life have been learned with other people, not on my own. And so there's this just abiding, enduring need for community. And if you withdraw yourself from community, bad things will happen. So I'm very much trying to encourage students this idea of others, the community. P is for practices, the spiritual disciplines, for example. Helping students to understand that Christianity is not merely a matter of intellectual assent, but that it's deeply embodied. And those embodied practices, fasting, prayer, solitude, silence, Sabbath, these are so helpful. They have helped Christians for 2,000 years in every culture, in every context. And embodying practices seems extremely important to me. The rhythms of a well-lived life. So that's S-C-O-P, and then the E is engagements. It's not enough to be able to understand these things. It's not enough to be caring for your own soul. It's not enough to be in community with people that you love and love. There's also a deliverable. There is a need that we all have. If we are to flourish spiritually, there's a need that we have to engage, to actually do stuff. As Heather was saying earlier, not out of triumphalism, but out of a sense of this is necessary for me as much as any community with whom I will engage. I would say the animating vision that I have about engagement is over the, the, the doorway of the open door, uh, which is a, an intentional community, um, and people without homes, people recovering from addiction, people recently released from incarceration, find a home there, and over the, the lintel it says, if you, as a volunteer, have come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because you know that your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Hi, 
hard to follow that. Um, I think there's definitely a theme. I think I would circle back to uh, Jim's first point about journey and this idea of getting out of what is familiar. I think what I see my time in Egypt, not just from the program, but my decade living in Egypt as this gift of, you know, the Chinese parable, if you want to understand the sea, don't ask a fish. Um, and just realizing, you know, living in America, just how much I took for granted that this is the way things are. And then the privilege of living in another country where I'm constantly trying to understand what, 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 what's happening? Why? What, why did they do that? What, how do I do that? Oh, oh. Um, constantly trying to understand and analyze the society around me, the family dynamics, the structures, to then be able to bring that back, because I'm never going to understand Egypt nearly as well as I understand the United States, but to bring back that tool of, so why do we do it this way? And, and to have it be almost like a, a cross-cultural experience to come back to the States and be, huh, interesting, intriguing. We have really big cars and really wide roads. And why do we do that? Um, and so to just kind of have the familiar become unfamiliar and to ask questions about it. And does it have to be this way or why is it this way? And that has been something that I think has profoundly affected me through my time living in another culture and then wanting to translate that for students or give them that opportunity to not, again, so much learn about Egypt, but when that analyzing or that attraction of analyzing, what will they be or who will they become when they come back to the States to then question why do we do things the way we do? Is this beneficial to everybody? Do some people benefit more than others? Um, particularly see this, I think, interestingly, when we take students to Israel-Palestine and they engage with the conflict there and the legal structures and questions of citizenship and rights, in the past, for many of our students, that's been their awakening to questions of racial justice in the United States. And there was something about being able to engage questions of power and inequality in a completely different context um, gave them the ability to see systems in ways that I just think it's hard for us to see our own systems. And so that's something that I learned from being in the region and I'm happy to and want to pass on for students. I think it applies though I've been thinking about this of how, you know, it's great to go to another country. Listen, Jim and I love what we do. But one of the things I think that I've also learned from the program is how can we change our microcultures or how can we get a new perspective? And for me, the one probably the biggest things that I've learned from the program is just getting outside of my microculture of being a professor. And I hadn't really fully realized how that was also a system that was shaping me and that I spend my time working with people who are 20 years younger than me, who have no authority over me, who, um, you know, I'm a solo, I'm a lone wolf. Professors are lone wolves. And I think leading a program, I was actually like, oh, the program itself is a cross-cultural experience or getting outside of my microcosm of being a professor. I'm having to work very closely with Jim and our marriage has survived, but it certainly put new stressors um, as I was not used to working with anyone. Um, and then also having students rather than a very controlled, you know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 
I'm up in front, they're there. I control that space and what happens in it to be on the road for four months with students and have them see you know, in the round. Um, I think it was that itself like, oh, there are, there are ways in which being a professor does not challenge me in certain ways or I can get into ruts or not question. Um, and leading the program has uh, caused me to like, yeah, think about those things. What is my microcosm of my work experience? And I can imagine but yeah, I don't know, somehow you get to a certain age in life and like, you know, the paths are set and the strengths and weaknesses of those are set. So what does it mean to try to like break out of them and create some kind of cross-cultural experience, even in our rhythms here, to see what they expose um, about us and our relationship with God and the areas where we need to grow. The program, has, the program itself has done that, I think, for me. Um, as one of my, our first semester, one of the alums asked me, like afterwards, like, "Oh, what are some things you've been learning?" I said, oh, I'm, "I've learned I'm a perfectionist," and I think they they almost fell off their chair and like, "We could have told you that a long time ago." Um, but you know, I was a slow learner, and it wasn't until like doing this program in my 40s that I was confronted with my perfectionism. So um, I think that yeah, that kind of so thinking about how do we create many maybe cross cultural experiences in our lives. Going back to Jim's point about being on a journey, how do we create journeys um, in our lives where God can meet us in new ways, I think is something I'm continuing to, to think about, especially, I guess, during COVID when we're not going back to Egypt in the immediate future. So those are some lessons. Uh, we want to open up the time if you have any questions, any things you're interested in. Dave. Can you tell me some of the main differences So David's question was some principal differences between um, the Islamic understanding of Allah and the biblical perception of God. Heather, do you want to know? Sure. I think the idea, so let me start, I think a similarity is an all-powerful creator God who created the world and is one God. That's a big similarity. I think a difference in that is that Islam emphasizes the oneness of God. Like the big idea of Islam is Tawheed Allah, God is one. And I think that creates a different understanding than when we have the idea of the Trinity, where mon like it's monotheistic, but this idea of God in relationship, and that in the relationship of the Trinity, we understand something about who God is, and that it's in this giving and taking and mutuality and love. Like, I don't think you can have love if there's not something, someone to love. And so I think that understanding of the Trinity versus the Islamic understanding of a more simple, simple monotheism, I think creates a different understanding of God in terms of the centrality of relationship, connection, and love. I think another point of... Um, so similarity is humans are created, but again, I think it, this idea in Islam that um, there, is no, there is no fall. All humans are born Muslim, and then each individual chooses to sin. So whereas Christianity, and I think Judaism is the idea we are sinners, uh, Islam has the idea that we sin. 
But I think that creates a different understanding and comes from a different understanding of God as well, where the idea is God is demanding righteousness and is holding that over us. And there's this emphasis on goodness, whereas I think the biblical understanding of God is this idea of human's fallenness and relationship and God drawing near. So in the Quran, David doesn't sleep with Bathsheba. Like the, the, the prophets are many of the same prophets, but they don't do the same thing. They don't mess up. And so I think that also says something about a different understanding of God, that God works through, in Islam, God works through good people, and that there are good and bad people. And the prophets are the good people. And then, you know, and our job is to try to be good people. Whereas I think the Bible and the God of the Bible is God works through fallen people and that that reflects who he is and how he relates to us. Um, I think those, that's some good, I don't know. Those are some things that immediately come to mind. Um, someone from this church says, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I want to be a Muslim instead. What would you say to them? I would say familiarity breeds contempt, Mark Twain. And I think it's easy to find the warts in the tradition that we know well and to romanticize what we don't know very well. So my first response would be, until you understand Islam and Muslims as well as you understand Christianity and Christians, don't do anything. Um, that's easy to have a romantic understanding from a distance um, and to be aware of our shortcomings and not be aware of the other shortcomings. Um, I think I would then probably come back to the, the points that I made earlier that I think to come back to the basics of the Christian message of a God who desires relationship so much that he doesn't send messengers, he comes himself and the profundity of working through, and not in spite of, but through our frailty. And that the cross as a message of self-sacrificial love and forgiveness, rather than a message of triumph and conquest, to not throw those out prematurely. <laughs> Kathleen. Um, so, uh, would you guys ever consider doing a program for um, anybody other than students, like people in life, or people who are on the brink of retirement and that, and trying to find a way to see, like you said, get your eyes open so that we can come back and maybe be more effective in this newfound free time and, and, and potentially let the program? So Kathleen's question was, would Heather and I consider running a, an analogous program uh, for people at a different and later stage of life? My mom asks me that every year. <laughs> like, I thought these my tennis friends. I really, you know, we can, uh, so <laughs> the question has, is out there. Um, So in 
Frankly, we, we haven't really thought deeply about that, but thank you for planting the seed and we will water it and see if it grows. <laughs> yeah, actually, I feel like, have you, I mean, Jim and I are aware that we are not getting any younger and, and at some point, uh, the thought of doing this for four months with 20, 20 year olds is gonna seem uh, a little bit daunting. Um, but again, as Jim said, planting a seed of what, what might, be another chapter. Um, that's certainly worth considering. Thank you. David. So did we go to the cave church in Moatham in Cairo? And the answer is yes, we did. Uh, Kenna, do you want to come up and tell us what you thought of it? Yes, we, we did go to the cave church. Um, I think the word that just popped into my head when I was picturing it and thinking back to my experience there is um, just astounding, in all honesty. Um, the size of it is like a stadium. It, it's like a natural stadium. Um, and they have church services every week that it's completely filled up. And miracles that happen every every church service of healings and um, just so many things that um, people just come to see and that was just I think a really cool thing to like stand in the presence of that you feel this um, weightiness I think being there and yeah the feeling of like God is so present in this place and working in this place um, and then one other thing I would say is just I think its location is really interesting being in Moatam um, and seeing the people's faithfulness there in the midst of, yeah, sorry. Um, Moatam is a place in Cairo um, that deals with a lot of poverty and they are also kind of um, have taken the responsibility of a lot of the waste management of Cairo, which is um, a lot. <laughs> Um, and so they are responsible for collecting the garbage throughout the city and bringing it and sorting through it. Um, and it's one of the most like, efficient systems, I think Jim said, in the world. So, um, but there's a very large Coptic population there and a lot of them attend that church. So I got to spend a lot of time there for my community engagement and work with um, the Sisters of Charity, which is Mother Teresa's organization. Um, so I would just say, yeah, the people of Mladam are very faithful, and you can see that and feel that being in their church, and um, know that just the presence of God is really working through them. Thank you, Ken. Any more questions?
So Steve's question was, uh, do we have any scary experiences that we might want to share? <laughs> I understand. Okay, let, let me take you back. Uh, it's March 2020, and our group is doing really well. We've been increasingly aware of this strange virus coming out of Wuhan, but we feel a long way from it. We're carrying on business as usual. No one in Cairo is getting sick. And then we start to see that things are beginning to close down around us. So Israel declares that they will no longer accept any people who have been in Egypt uh, at any stage in the last month. And so we have to cancel the plan to go to uh, Israel-Palestine. Then we thought we'll just extend the time in Istanbul, but oh no, uh, it becomes very quickly clear that it's just not appropriate for us to continue swanning around the world while the world closes down around us. So we tell our students, never mind, we will spend an extra few days in Cairo and we'll wrap up here and we'll be leaving in about 10 days. Students are disappointed, but they have a fantastic attitude. And then we hear, Monday the 16th of March, that Egypt has just announced that it's going to close all its airports and seaports in 48 hours. So we need 19 seats to anywhere on a plane. And even more concerning, uh, we learn indirectly uh, that the State Department is considering closing its doors to returning Americans uh, starting on Wednesday night. And this is Monday night. And we don't have any tickets to anywhere yet. So that did cause some serious reflection. <laughs> and we were using a travel agent in California who told us that it was not looking good. Flights were out, all booked up, not a surprise. We weren't the only people who wanted to leave. And I think... Um, I remember going for a, for a walk for an hour and just trying to play through in my head in a kind of prayerful way what, what we were going to do, what would happen if we couldn't get out, what would happen if we could only get a few of the students out, do we start putting them all on, you know, just go to the airport and oh, British Airways can take one, KLM can take two. What if some of them don't get out? You know, I mean, it was a mess. And so I, it was pretty clear to me that we actually could keep the students perfectly safe in Cairo. We're going to be fine. The students were fabulous, really, really mature, really impressive. We're, we're going to work this out. It's going to be okay. And so came back, encouraged by that, just as I did, travel agent calls to say, I've got 19 seats. Got to go to Dubai. There's no connecting flight the same day. You'll have to stay overnight. But then the following day, we can get you back to LA. Fantastic. And you know, the one thing that I was actually most concerned about, Steve, was not the virus. 
It was the parents. Some of our parents are pretty well connected. And I had a mental image of Navy SEALs appearing. So that was our worst moment. Another question? Yeah, Sarah. question is how are Heather and I applying scope uh, here and now, especially during a pandemic? It's a great question, Sarah. I think that uh, it's really striking to me how COVID and the restrictions are truly painful and existentially painful. And a number of the things that I would love to be doing, such as preparing to take students for the next iteration of the program, we can't do. And, and that's, a, that's a real, although somewhat ambiguous loss. But I'm also conscious that opportunities have opened up. Uh, Zoom is a much derided medium, but it's also pretty remarkable. And so, for example, I've just uh, completed a J-term class at Calvin College in Michigan called, as a student, called uh, Faithful Anti-Racism in a Time of COVID. And the entire class was online, on Zoom. Uh, so a black psychology professor there was, was leading the, the class. And there's no way that I would have gone to Michigan for three weeks to, to take this class. But the fact that, you know, we were able to open it up and I was able to, as part of, I would say, this, this sea of confession, you know, trying to understand my own uh, complicity in, in in race and the unsatisfactory situation um, around race in this country. Um, so I've also been able to, uh, we're so fortunate obviously here in Santa Barbara, I've got a nice little back garden and just having somebody over for tea, sitting outside, socially distanced, almost every single day since the since the outbreak started. And that's just been, been wonderful. So I think that the opportunities for me of practicing scope are very real, they're very present, but they're just somewhat different. Yeah, it's a, a great question. I think it really been hard. I think one of the things that we maybe over the last couple of years, I think when we first came to Westmont, it was all about the program and our cross-cultural experience was Westmont and Westmont students and setting up the program to take them to Egypt. 
And that was kind of, it was our bread and butter. It was what we lived. I think maybe three years ago, um, in part from reading this book, from which Jim quoted earlier about the open door, was a recognizing if we're taking the students to Egypt, we're, we've also brought ourselves to the United States and we live in Santa Barbara. Our heart may be in Egypt, but this is where we live and we know very little about it. And so I think we were already starting to think about how do we live the way we lived in Egypt here? What is our engagement? Um, and we're asking students to be engaged in Egypt, but how are we engaged here? So I think we had already started to explore and get involved in things that we hadn't done the first five years we were here, like meal sharing in Alameda Park, trying to learn more about what's happening on the Lower East Side, where can we get involved? So COVID has made those things hard, so much has shut down, but I think there was already this journey of, we go to Egypt and our heart is there, but we do live here. So, so where, where are we being engaged and how are we living what we preach um, in ways that feel hard, because we understand Egyptian culture, but we don't understand um, so the dynamics of So trying to educate ourselves about, again, our own city, our own city council, our own decision-making and allocating of resources. And um, so that's something that started before COVID and we've tried to keep chugging away at it, but expectation is that as COVID lifts, again, thank you for, what, how might our, our long-term engagement with the Middle East look like? But also I think there's been hope for us in the last couple of years of, oh, we wanna live here like we lived in Egypt. What does that mean to, be curious about it and being engaged where we can be. Is that helpful? Time for one, one more question, maybe? I'd like to hear from Meg. Yeah. 2014, so that was a ways back. Well, as no, I, no, 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 no. Oh, oh, I'm coming up. As I sit and stand here reflecting, I'm thinking about the the edges of influence being indistinguishable in my life of, of Jim and Heather's um, impact on my life and, and that of my friends and the family. Um, and yeah, I think being a part of the Foundry group, which a few other people here have been a part of, that was a year after I'd come back from studying abroad with Heather and Jim and we focused on spiritual disciplines, we practiced community, and that was, um, yeah, that was a time that set me up for the following years well. And now that I've started seminary, I've repeated the phrase, I'm a human being, not a human doing, <laughs> many, many times. Um, and I think that has also just been a helpful reminder in this pandemic time just to repeat that phrase and um, remember a gentleness for myself and for those around me and for my community and the power of being with someone even if it is through a FaceTime call or sitting six feet away in a, in a garden space. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the lessons and influence that you have poured into my life are just Endless. So thank you. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, mate. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much, everybody, for 
coming along. We've really appreciated uh, sharing these thoughts and reflections with you. Thank you.